Bible, you can turn there. That'd be cool. For those of you who don't, you want to make sure you get one. Some pretty good stuff in it. And you guys own a Bible, but you don't know that there's some good stuff in it. I'd encourage you to start opening it. <coughs> there's some good stuff in it. Um, <coughs> during worship, I felt like there was something on the song, Come Alive in the Name of Jesus. Right, really stood out as I was worshiping and, and praying and feeling like, almost like it was a word for the body here, right? That it's it's a work God wants to do to to call you guys to come alive in the name of Jesus, right? And that carries so much weight, right? Uh, a lot of us who were raised in the church in the name of Jesus is the magic phrase you say at the end of your important prayers. Right? If you want someone to get healed, you pray for them, but then you use the magic words in the name of Jesus. Right? It's like the Christian version of Harry Potter's special chants. <coughs> that if you prayed and you didn't say in the name of Jesus, who do you think you are? Trying to heal someone in your own strength? In your own power? If you don't use the magic words, are you even a Christian? Right, that's the perspective. Some of you guys may not have it. You're all staring at me like, what the heck is he talking about? So maybe I'm unique here. But where I grew up, those were the magic words. You said that. That was often coupled with the other magic word, amen, right? Which meant, okay, the prayer's over. We are, we are done with our holy talk, and now we're back to regular talk. But in the name of Jesus is... Not something that scripture tells us was meant to be chanted at the end of all our prayers. It was meant to be a being. You were doing what you did in the name of Jesus. You were being who you are in the name of Jesus. And I touched on this last time I was here about the great commandments, right? And then the Ten Commandments, how these are epic Arc overarching commands like don't have any other God before me. Don't make any graven images of me. Don't say bad words with my name in it. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it sanctified and holy. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. So there's like these nine massive commands. And then number three is like, don't you dare swear and use my name. And it's so disjointed. Right when and we talked about how the real emphasis there is don't you claim to represent me and then do that in vain. Like don't claim to be mine and live differently. Don't claim to be a name bearer of me and then live in a way that doesn't represent me well. And that is what Jesus talks about the whole New Testament. And Paul emphasizes it to the point where he removes people from the church because they're misrepresenting Jesus while claiming to be a name bearer claiming to be one of his. And so it's a serious thing. Um, but in the name of Jesus, when you're saying come alive in this name, it's more than just like the song saying, commanding you in the name of Jesus to do something, right? It's not using the magic term to tell you to come alive, right? Like Simon says, right? That type of idea. It's saying come alive in the name of Jesus. Like come into the family of God. Come into the name of God. Take upon yourself his name, his identity, his image, and come alive. That's where you find life. One of my favorite 
uh, people alive today right now is John Lennox, and this guy is, he's like a, a towering pillar and father of the faith and intellect. Uh, and one of the things he says to his grandchildren and to everybody, he says, pour over the word until you see his face. Right? And this is why I just started harping on getting a Bible at the beginning and reading it, right? Because this was on my mind. Like, because I was thinking, come alive. Like, what does it mean for this place? What does it mean to come alive? And how do we come alive? How do we come alive in Christ? Because it's, it's more than just having more energy. It's more than hype. You don't want hype. You want, you want life. You want real life. You want the, the life of, of the faith pulsating in this place. You want everyone who's within reach of this place to want to be here. You understand? You want there to be something that pulsates from this place, that, that Maine, which is so stooped in religiosity, right, in historic re religiosity, to see that there's something genuine here. There's actual life in this place. And the more you tap into coming alive in Christ in this place, the more you'll see the rotation attendance thing diminish, and you'll see people saying, like, why would I ever miss this? This is where we come together, and we find strong encouragement in the faith, and where we interact with other people who are alive like us, and this synergistic life begins to compound and reproduce. And I think that's what God's after. It's what he's calling you to. That's why I think I was feeling that on that song. It would just come alive. And it felt like a prophetic call from the spirit. And I felt like I was going to stand up here as like the Holy Spirit pleaded through me to come alive. And so I started to really push and think like, and I just, it was like the scripture, th this phrase from John, John Lennox, like pour over the scriptures until you see his face. And then you tie that with John 5, John 5.39, where he challenges the Pharisees. He says, you guys pour over the scriptures because you think in them is eternal life. He says, but the scriptures testify about me. And it's that same point again. He's like, you guys are pouring over the scriptures as if by by pouring over them, that they are the source of life. And he's saying, no, they point to me, the source of life. The scriptures are dead as just black and white letters on a page, absent from who they testify to, absent from who embodies those words. It was the word made flesh that came and dwelt among us and became the light amongst us, right? that called us to him, and he said, all you who labor and are weary, come to me. And then he describes himself as the way, the truth, and the life. And then he takes that one step further in one of my favorite statements. He goes to Lazarus, and he's at this whole Lazarus scene, and they're like, yeah, we know. We know he'll be alive again in the resurrection. And Jesus stops and looks at them, I am the resurrection the life you see he took it one say he wasn't just here saying i am the life he's telling to <laughs> telling them like every good thing you're hoping for i am and i'm in your midst and i am alive and i'm telling you he will live because i am life life has come to visit the dead 
and it has no choice but to come to life in the presence of life himself. And they're like, yeah, yeah, in the resurrection. No, no, no. I am the resurrection. When I'm present, the dead resurrect and they are alive again because you are in the presence of eternal life. And so how can we, as people who are name bearers of Christ, who come together in his name, have God present, have eternal life present in our midst and not come alive? It's a good barometer test for whether we are truly coming together in Christ here. If we came together in Christ, if two or three who are gathered together in the name of Jesus came together, and Scripture says when that happens, I am present with you. I am alive in your midst. I am there. You should see the fruits of it. We should see the demonstrations of life in our midst when we come together in his name and he's present. And that should be our highest pursuit. We don't come to church to have good worship, which we had great worship today. Thanks. You did a really great job. That's high pressure to be like the only voice on the worship team, You're like in the spotlight. I know my wife's a worship leader. I led worship in my old days. Um, <coughs> some. I really just play guitar kind of thing. But I like to say it. Tommy, were you around when I played guitar during prayer for us and helped lead worship? <sighs> Wesley might have been there a few times while I did it. Oh, yeah, I rocked on the guitar. I couldn't play the F chord, though. So... In my mind, yes, yes. I would just play, and then when the F chord came up, I'd just mute it and then keep going. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's why I don't do it any longer. <coughs> but anyway, you did a really great job. I really appreciated it. Uh, and, and I think that when we come together and we're not here just for good music or good messages or whatever gluten-free brownies get brought or whatever that are really tasty, um, all the perks and benefits of coming together. We come together because when we're gathered together, he's present. It's like when the presence of God would descend on the, the tent, when the Israelites were in the wilderness, and Moses would go out there, and it would descend, and Joshua would go with them. And then Joshua, after Moses left, would linger there in his presence because he was like, there is no other place I would rather be. Right? And David in the Psalms sings how he would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of heaven than anywhere else. It's this idea of recognizing the life of God in the place. And when you've tasted it, you can't have enough of it. And you will come and you will come and you will come until you've sucked it dry. Except this thing will spring up within you as a source of eternal water that never runs dry. You'll never get enough. And the life of the church is supposed to be that. You're supposed to find that here. And if you don't, you need to drop everything and pursue it. There's nothing else that matters, guys. What else are you pursuing? You got a retirement fund that's growing and you're really happy about it? You got a nice boat coming up you're looking forward to? Maybe you're going to put a little addition on your home. You're super pumped and excited about it couple grandkids coming are these the things you're living for 
These, if they are from God, are meant to be little gifts and expressions of his love to you that are meant to cause you to come to him more. To be like, you are so good. Thank you for this spouse, God. Your loving expression to me of this husband or wife has been such a gift from you. What a good God you are. How can I not love you? How can I not live for you at all costs? This is crazy, though, when we look around and we see people who are claiming to to be name bearers of Christ, but living for something else, anything else. Pick it. It doesn't matter what it is. What are we doing as the church? How did this ever happen? How do we come and worship a God that we don't believe is God? And you're like, how dare you? I do believe in God. Fine. Your actions and the way you live would demonstrate that. If you believed he is who he says he is, I bet your life looks different. Your priorities are radically different. What you're living for is different. Your motivation for everything you do is different because you are someone who has come alive and you remember what it was like to not be. And there's nothing that could draw you back to that. There is nothing. There is no boat. There is no addition. There is no no joy on this earth that you could remember that would pull you back from it. And instead, you'd be continuously thrown into the trajectory of pursuing him more and more. And then life will get hard, and you'd be like, it doesn't matter. I've tasted and I've seen that he is good, that he is real. And when he's present, that's what I live for. So I will never forsake the gathering of the saints because he's there. I will never forsake my prayer closet because he's there. I will never stop pouring over the living word of God because that's where I see him. He meets me there. He embodies these things. He is there. It's why the scriptures tell us that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Not because it's cool imagery, but because of what it does. It pierces asunder between the soul and the spirit. Right. It says like the bone and marrow to try to show you just how precise it is. Right. For anyone who knows how the bone and then the marrow in the bone. Right. It's it's inseparable. Right. To do it takes really precise surgery. And he's saying the word of God is sharper than that. And it separates between the soul and the spirit. And the context there is the soul, meaning the soulish things, your mind, will and emotions. What makes you you? Right. And the word separates the things of the spirit from those things so that you can see what is true and good and godly and the things that are of your own soul, the soulish things. And that's what the word does. It separates those and it brings us, it sanctifies us so that we can see him clearly in his word. But there's so many of us that either through ignorance, we don't know, we've never taught, we've never experienced it. We think that we're okay just doing the kind of religious thing. And if you just because you're not in a Catholic church doesn't mean you're not doing the religious thing. There's plenty of people who are Christians and come to Christian churches that just do the religious thing. They pay their weekly Sunday service attendance tithe, right? Yeah, I gave my time to the Lord on Sunday. And once in a while, I might even 
stop in in that Bible study and learn some of the principles. But man, what happens when you start to realize, wait, I am lost without this. I don't know Christ. I claim to know him. I claim to follow him. I claim him as my savior, but my life demonstrates I haven't claimed him as my Lord. And the tragic thing, guys, is you can't have one without the other. You can't have just part of him. The Savior is the Lord. And if he's not your Lord, he's not your Savior. Really crazy fact. Um, Jesus is referred to as Savior 25 times in the entire New Testament. The entire New Testament, 25 times. He's referred to as Lord over 700 times in the New Testament. Do you understand that? Do you understand the emphasis the scriptures are trying to put on Jesus? That he came to be Lord, and he happened to be a Lord who saved you. Here's the cold, hard facts, guys. Not everyone is going to call Jesus their Savior. Just true. Not everyone is going to call him Savior. But every single soul who has ever lived or will ever live is going to bow their knee and confess that he is Lord. Every soul, no exceptions, will know him as Lord. But only those who have chosen to make him their Lord in this life will have the privilege to also call him Savior. And if you can take an honest assessment of your life and you come to the conclusion that you are the Lord of your life and he is not, that should be a sobering wake-up call to the fact that you have been deceived into thinking he's your Savior. You can't have both. And if that is the case, one of the fruits of it will, you, will be you not feeling the life of God within you. Not feeling alive to God. Not feeling the relationship with God. And I'm not talking about the feelings of your five senses. I'm not talking about see, hear, taste, touch, and smell. I'm talking about the inner feeling, the spirit and soul, the, the resonating with the truth of God, that when you read scriptures, the truth comes out to you. There's an encounter with God when you become his. That's why he promises, my sheep hear my voice. They know me. And if you're at that place and you're not sure, there is nothing else more important or more critical for you to do than to get in your face, get on your knees, grab some people that you look up to and seem they seem like they do know him as Lord and say, I need prayer. And you pray and you seek the face of God until he fulfills his promise to draw near to you. Because he does. It's a promise. And he's not a man that he would lie. When God speaks, it's done. Yeah. <coughs> so, that was all cool stuff. I didn't come up here to, again, be a bully, right? I want to encourage. I want to say, hey, Cameron. So good to see you. It's been a long time. I know. Well, I just recognize you. 
when I preach, I kind of, everyone's just a blur. If you think I'm making eye contact with you, I did not recognize that. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, it's just. <laughs> um, anyway, I feel like that's important. So I want, just pray into that, the come alive in the name of Jesus part, because I really feel like it, it's a prophetic statement and a call, a call to come alive. And I didn't want to just leave you with a vague idea, like what I really believe the primary steps and tools to come alive in the name of Jesus starts with getting in the word of God until you see him, until you see him. And that's what John 539 is about. He's saying, like, you don't look to the scriptures for eternal life. You look to the scriptures because they're testifying of the life himself. And that's how you find him. This is the self-revelation of God to us. That's what the scriptures are. And when we recognize it as such, we will not miss out. Right? And some of us, we grew up in the church, so we're inoculated to the scriptures. Right? We think they're just things we had to memorize in school or in Sunday school. And we're like, yeah, the scriptures, yeah, I had to memorize Psalm 91 one time. And I quoted Psalm 23 during a Christmas service. And you're just like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's stuff. But that's when you're reading it as if it's just a book. But when you say, Jesus, I want to know you, I need to know you, like that's, that's the whole point here. Like it, it's to know you. And you start reading, you say, God, show yourself to me, show yourself to me, and then you pour over the scriptures. And then the Holy Spirit starts bringing it alive to you, and you start seeing it, and you'll start realizing some of the things you read touching your emotions, right? You might even get watery-eyed while you're reading something, and you're not even sure why, and it just touches you, and right there you just begin to pray and worship God over that and see what happens, right? And if you're like, man, I've tried to read the Bible. I just don't understand it. We have so many ways to help you through that, by the way. The Bible is not a complex book. It's not. We have a bunch of stuff. We have a thing called redemptive history, right? It's online. You could jump on. You could take it. It walks you through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation to help you see the big story of God throughout the scriptures so that you now understand what the Bible's saying and why it's saying it. Right? There's so many tools out there. Like, in other words, you are left without an excuse. Just isn't one. The only thing missing is a hunger and a desire within you to do it. And the only one who can put that in there is the Holy Spirit. And so what do you do? You go to him and he'll do it. <coughs> I don't want to drag on, but I wanted to tie that into the idea of what I talked about a couple weeks ago about the ecclesia. And the church and the mission, right? And that's what I talked about, the Great Commission, how we're on a great co-mission that Jesus has given us. It's a mission that's meant to be carried out as a community, as a body of Christ together. It's not a solo job, right? Our life is not at the center of our purpose. Our life is meant to revolve around Christ and his mission. And his mission is the church. Remember, and I used the word ecclesia to try to really paint the picture of what Jesus intended for the church, that it was meant to be an outpost of his authority, that everywhere you put an ecclesia from that place would spread the kingdom message and its peace, its gospel, right? And it would enforce it, right? Through, and I talked about knowing him and, and loving as he has loved you, right? And that's how I concluded it, that you can't love the way Christ loves you until you know how he's loved you. And so that starts with getting in the scriptures and recognizing, reading about the things he's done and how he loves you and, and seeing those things. So 
I preached a message a while back. I titled it The Supremacy of Christ. Uh, and I really want to talk about the church and what that looks like now as an individual in the church. What does it look like to be a disciple of Christ? And I titled it The Supremacy of Christ. And I just, I remember saying, man, we could title every message The Supremacy of Christ. And it would fit. Because that's just what it all comes down to. Because when I was preparing this thing for discipleship, when I did preach it, I just was like, man, it just keeps coming down to the su- if someone does not recognize the supremacy of Christ, they won't do this. If someone does not recognize it, they won't, they won't care. They won't want to do this. They won't want to be a part. And now you're dragging people along. And it's like Jesus didn't drag anyone along. People would come and say, what do I have to do? And they would turn away sorrowful because he's like, you have to do very hard things if you want to be my disciple. Right? Today, we have giant marketing schemes. <laughs> come, please. We'll make it as easy as possible for you to come and become a Christian. And he's like, why do we do that? Because we've lost the conviction of the supreme value of Christ. We've lost the conviction that what we have truly is a treasure in the field that is worth everything for. We've lost that conviction, and we've lost the belief that that's true, that we hold the highest prize, and that the invitation is being made to these people who are utterly lost in darkness, and in the facade of their satisfaction, we believe it. We start to believe they're too satisfied. We start to believe they're too fulfilled. Instead of recognizing what Scripture says, the harvest is ripe. It's there. He even says, don't bother praying for it, guys. Like, Why are you praying for something that already is? You look crazy when you do that, right? If I'm like holding a Bible and I just start praying ferociously, God, give me a Bible, please. I really need a Bible. Send me a Bible. Lord, we're waiting for the Bible. God, send it, God, send it. And you're holding it. You look crazy. The church looks crazy. We're praying for God to send the harvest. And he literally in his word says, stop it. What you need to pray for is laborers. You need to pray for people who will become disciples of Christ, who will recognize the mission, who will give their lives to the mission, and then you'll see the harvest come in. Because it's out there waving, saying, hi, guys, come pick us. And we have a massive uh, worker shortage in the kingdom. And Jesus is like, pray for that. Get on your face and pray for laborers. Pray for that. We just had a conference at our church last weekend, and we had a ministry called First Love come in, and they brought a bunch of their facilitators, and they were there, which were all our interns, and we had like 30 people going through this thing, and it's designed to, to kind of introduce them to a fresh encounter with the love of God. And uh, during one of the debriefs with all their stuff, they're like, so what do you guys do? How do you guys do all this and train leaders? I was like, well, and this is what I said to him. I said, well, 95% of our effort is in training and producing new leaders. He said, the rest of it just happens by the Holy Spirit. We're not sure. Right? Like, like, how do you do all these church things? How are you doing all this stuff? He's like, we don't know. It just happens because our entire effort is on training leaders and producing leaders. Uh, Just recognizing the desperate need for workers in the kingdom. 
and that's just everything. Like from from the thing when we start redemptive history, as soon as a new convert comes in, we're on a mission to make them a leader. <coughs> because of the need, there's such a strong need, and this is what Jesus is encouraging us to pray into. But we need people to come and recognize one the supremacy of Christ and His surpassing value, and then the the vision and the value of the mission, aka the church, the ecclesia, right? John, um, I got so many Johns in my head now. John Lennox, John the Apostle, John Wimber, uh, John Wesley. <laughs> John Wesley said this, and I, I think I quoted this when I was here last time. It makes sense. It's on the theme here. He said that the church does not change the world by making converts. It changes the world by making disciples. Right? So two things. I want you to recognize that John's expectation is that the church changes the world. Catch that first part. And that wasn't even the focus of his quote. That was the assumed belief that John Wesley lived under. He assumed that that was just the truth of the reality. He knew the supremacy of Christ. He knew the power of the church of God on the earth. He knew the mission and its, its guaranteed success. And so he makes a statement saying, hey, guys, the church doesn't change the world by making converts. And it just slipped under the radar that his complete expectation was for the church to change the world. But in his insight, in his experience, he recognized it doesn't change the world by just making converts. Because this is a man who preached in the streets and in the byways and in the fields. He had been kicked out of the institutionalized church. This is a man who said, asked John Wesley where he was going to preach. What parish are you going to preach in? And he responded to the guy and said, the world is my parish. And so he would begin, he started by preaching in fields and just throngs of people would come to him. And he said the church that doesn't change the world by making converts because he had seen many converts be made but not become disciples. He said it changes the world by making disciples. And then he instituted the Holiness Club, which was his way of planting churches. And he planted a church a day for like 100 years, the entire Western mov Western movement, the Methodist movement, right? A hundred years straight of a church a day. And in those things, they had strict systems of, of living according to the lordship of Jesus. They had to come and gather together and pray together and repent of their sins, confess whatever sins they had fallen short of so that the enemy wouldn't have a, a foothold, and then they would go out and preach with them. It was really powerful. But this is the man who said, the church doesn't change the world by making converts, but by making disciples. And that is just the message of Jesus. Literally. Guys, <coughs> he said, as you go, make disciples. This is known as the Great Commission. It's known as the Great Commission. And I'm just asking you guys, when was the last time you made a disciple? You don't have to raise your hand. It's a, just between you and God to just be challenged. Allow yourself to be challenged by this truth. When was the last time you made a disciple? Because this isn't the great suggestion. This isn't what God recommended as a good way of living. This was the great commission 
from Jesus to his disciples. It's not an option. He's either Lord or he's not. And if he's Lord, we submit to his lordship. And his lordship said, make disciples. How have we strayed from this so far? How have we gotten so wrapped up in whatever other things we think is more important somehow? How have we thought, begun to live in such a way that, that, that our jobs or our careers or our plans or our families or our relationships or anything have become more important than following our Lord? I mean, in my experience, most people don't even think about making disciples. Because the way the American church has, has grown up and the, the idea they've had of the church is so foreign to the biblical idea of church that that's the pastor's job. The pastor makes disciples. We come and we pay a tithe so that they can keep making disciples. And when we stand before God, we're going to say, God, did you see how much my 9.5% produced when I gave? Or 7% or 8%? Some of you guys are good. You get 10%. You're like, I empowered my pastor to make many disciples. And he's like, who are you? Do I know you? Oh, you're one of those people that used to come to church and, and, and watch. But then as soon as you left church, you went back to your own lordship, your own kingdom. But you seem like a good person, but I never knew you. That's a hard truth. What's trying to mean? I just literally want to see you guys come alive in the truth. And that takes shaking and rocking paradigms until you can see what Scripture's saying and what the call of Christ was. He said this, come, follow me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He said, I have come to give you life and that even more abundantly. There is abundant life. And listen. The kingdom of heaven is righteousness, peace, and joy. Joy. Genuine joy. Not temporary satisfaction, not temporary happiness, but actual life-giving, life-changing joy. When you surrender your worthless life to the Lord, he redeems it, and he makes it valuable, and he gives you a joy that the Bible describes as unspeakable. Can you imagine being filled with a joy that you didn't know how to communicate with words? Your only way of communicating it was through expression, through manifestation, through manifesting it, the life of God manifested in you. And then as you went about places, people were like, something different. They recognize it. You're supposed to be recognized. And that this is the call, like, it's not a call to, to misery. It's a call to true joy. It's a call to where there is, there is pleasure in the sacrifice. <clears throat> this is the vision, the vision God has. And this is the vision we need to have for the church because when we come together and we, we see this life-giving source begin to flow, we begin to desire more of it. We begin to see of it. But the problem is we don't 
have this vision, so therefore the cost and the sacrifices don't seem worth it. We're not willing to pay those prices because we don't have the vision in our heart for what we're sacrificing for, right? The disciples, they were captured by the, the Pharisees at one point, and they were beat up and told not to continue preaching in the name of Jesus any longer. And they had to let him go by the law, though, because they hadn't really broken any law, but they beat him. And it says the disciples left in great joy because they were found worthy to suffer in the same way their Lord suffered. Just stop and think about that for a second. Don't let it go over your head. Don't be like, I've heard this a million times. I grew up in the church. I know this passage. Stop and think about it. Put yourself in their shoes. You just got beat up. Okay? Physically beat. And if you know anything about the Jewish culture, they didn't just smack you. Okay? They had tools for this type of stuff. It was called a cleansing. Right? And so they were beaten as a cleansing. And they left with bruises and marks and sores and probably bleeding. And they looked at each other and it said they were filled with great joy. Because they recognized, guys, it's happening. What our Lord said would happen is happening. He said if they hate him, they will hate us also. And this is what they did to him. They went in, and all we were doing was preaching the same message of Jesus, and they did the same thing to us. And they were filled with joy because the revelation hit them. We've been counted worthy to suffer just like him. And it fueled them, and it says they went back out and continued preaching Jesus. But today, so many churches are literally scared into silence and corners by people saying mean things about him. Calling us dogmatic or religious or stuffy or conservative. And we're like, no, 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 really we're not. We're kind of, we're actually progressive. When you think about it. It's just like, it doesn't matter what we are. We're disciples. What does that mean to you? Right? And that's the point. But here's, here's the beautiful part. Proverbs 29, 18 says this, that where there's no vision, people cast off restraint and they do their own thing. And Solomon repeats that a couple other times in his Proverbs. But he says, where there is no vision, people will cast off restraint and do their own thing. And that's what we see in the church everywhere. Everywhere. People just cast off any restraint. The restraint of the way of the teachings of Christ and his apostles that are in scripture, that are just all throughout it. People are like, yeah, that's nice, but I'll do, I'll do my own thing. The scripture tells us, do not avenge yourselves. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Yet, the minute you find out someone was saying something bad about you or gossiping about you, you turn right around and you prop up and you defend yourself. And you take vengeance and you start speaking right back at them. Or you need to get there. And It's like we don't actually live according to the teachings of the scripture. And we don't feel the urgency to do so. When people heard the gospel message and the power of it, it says they were struck to the heart. And they turned and they said, what must I do to be saved? This was their response to the truth when it was revealed to them. And we have people who have grown up in the church 
probably some of us here, that have been inoculated by this truth because we've heard the teachings and we've seen so many people not live according to it. And so we've just grown up thinking it's powerless and suggestions and everyone I know lives different way, but they're all Christians. They seem to be fine. But they're not fine. And we're not fine. And the world is definitely not fine. And the world needs people to start taking, following Christ seriously and rise up to the challenge and change the way we live and start digging in and seeking the teachings of Christ and his apostles. Start realizing Jesus came and established the faith. It was known for the first hundred years of Christianity as the way. That's how it got identified, guys, as the way, because there was a very specific way a Christian was to live. And they got identified by that as those who live according to that way. And here we are today, we live according to whatever way we want, as long as we show up at church on Sunday <coughs> and claim Christ. And that's not okay anymore. It's just not acceptable. And there are people all across the globe, especially in America, who are starting to take it seriously, rise up, and it's going to create a clash between those who are living an authentic, humble pursuit after Christ as disciples versus those who are living the, the church life, the, Christian, the American Christian life. And it's going to cause conflict. And it reminds me of what Jesus came when there was conflict there. He said, I didn't come to bring peace, guys. He said, I came to bring a sword to separate fathers from sons and mothers from daughters and brothers from sisters. Sheesh. Those are strong words. We don't get to just delete those. We don't get to just flip the page and say, I don't know what that meant, but it sounded a little mean, so I'm going to keep going. Oh, here he is. Yeah, for God so loved the world. We're back, guys. We're back. <coughs> no one ever finishes that. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that whosoever will believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be saved. Why? Because the world was already condemned. And he says... Here is the condemnation that light came into the world, but men chose their darkness. And it says this, that men, let me make sure I got this right, men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That's the whole message Jesus gave there. It was because he loved the world that he did send his only son. So that whoever did believe that he truly was Lord and demonstrated that fact would be saved. He says, but here's the condemnation you are all under already. You love darkness rather than light. Because your deeds are evil. And so he calls those who are willing to come out of the darkness into the light. And those who do that begin to recognize and they get to say, he's my Lord and my Savior. So anyway, let me, let me get to this to wrap it up. I think, is it time to wrap it up? I don't know, I'm just, I'm, uh, I'm gun shy. Stephanie's not here, so I won't know when to stop. If I go over two hours, stop me, guys. No, I'm just kidding, guys. Just kidding. Baby steps, baby steps. Okay, good. <laughs> okay.
because you just had a baby. I get it. Yeah, yeah. That's I heard that's a tough thing to do. <laughs> so the idea is that we cast off restraint because we don't have a vision. But when we have a vision, here's a cool statement I heard one time. I repeated a thousand times. Vision gives pain its purpose. Think about this. Vision gives pain its purpose. If you don't have vision, the pain has no purpose and you're not willing to endure it. You're not willing to pay the price of pain. You're not willing to be like the apostles who got beat and counted it joy because you don't understand the vision for the beating. So it just feels like a, a useless beating. I could have avoided this beating by just staying quiet and just waiting until you know I was alone for that person, maybe invited him over for tea and then we could have had a private conversation and I wouldn't got beat. But instead, they understood the vision. And the vision gave the pain they experienced purpose, reason. And so they were now able to endure that pain and suffering and the price that you pay and the things you give up and the things you surrender. Because, like Song of Solomon says, had a man, a man would have given up everything he owned and still counted it garbage in compared to what he received. And that's the, the reason why Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field. And a man who finds it goes home, sells everything he once valued in order to get enough money to go buy that seemingly worthless field to everyone else because he knew it had a uncountable treasure in it. And then he says the same thing in a different way for people who would understand it differently in the pearl of great price person who would the, the concept is you give up everything else you once valued because this surpasses the value of all of that by a lot so what we end up coming to guys is the disruption this is what happens so we're all here and we're like yes yes we agree steve jesus is lord and savior and we need to we need to radically shift our lives in order to live according to these teachings and and the vision and come alive in christ so that we recognize that jesus is here and we begin to see the word of God go out in power. We manifest it in our own lives. We're radically changed. And we can all be like, yes, we agree to those thoughts. They're good. But anyone can agree to thoughts. What happens when those thoughts begin to disrupt your life? That's the rubber meeting the road. That's the real challenge here, guys. When these things are actually believed and internalized, they create a disruption in your life. And if you've not felt that disruption, you probably haven't done this. It doesn't matter how long you've been walking with God. It continues to disrupt your life, constantly disrupting your life. And that disruption looks like something, right? It's the Great Commission. And this is where we bring it. It all comes back down to this. The Great Commission is this. As you go, make disciples. It's pretty simple, straightforward. And then it tells us how to do it. Baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that right there is the adoption moment. It's an adoption scene. You're bringing these people that you have presented the gospel to, and they've heard it with joy, and they want to now come be part of Christ and follow him. You bring and you baptize them into the family of God, and they become name bearers now. They have been baptized into his name so that now they claim they are a son or daughter of God. And once that's happened, you now begin to teach them to obey all the teachings of Christ. 
Now, what do you think the disciples heard when they heard this? Put yourself in their shoes. Jesus says to them, as you go about your life, make disciples. What's their only encounter with discipleship? Interaction, that's it. With Jesus. They only know what Jesus has done for them. And so when they hear, go make disciples, they hear, do to others what I did for you. So Jesus is saying, as you go, do for others what I've done for you. And then bring them into my family so that they know they're part of a supernatural family now. They're part of something real and tangible on the earth. They now bear my name. I have welcomed them in. Where they were once not called sons and daughters of God, now in the same place they're now called sons and daughters of God. And when you do that, I want you to begin to teach them how to obey my teachings. Not teach them the teachings. Teach them how to obey them. That takes relationship, discipleship, teaching, training, coaching, interaction, messy conflict resolution, life challenges. It is an all-in thing. You don't get to do it once a week in a one-hour class. It disrupts your life. You're changing spiritual diapers for, for years. Right? All you parents are like, oh, shoot, that clicks. That does disrupt your life. Three in the morning with projectile things happening at the worst time. <coughs> anyway, so I want to I leave you with this challenge. There are many, many people in the church who are followers of Christ, but not disciples. <coughs> they follow him for the things they believe he'll do for them. They follow him for the healings, for the provisions, even for the good community. It's hard. The world's starving for community out there. And you can find that in churches. And you can have community in a lot of churches without Christ. It's just there. There are lots of followers. But followers, followers got turned away. That rich young ruler was a follower of Christ. But he felt the disconnect within him, and he said, I know there's more. I don't have this eternal life. What must I do to have this eternal life? And Jesus looked at him and told him, after he first, he says, obey the command. He just tells him, of course, obey the command. And the guy's like, I do that. Oh, what else? There's something else. And that's when Jesus looked in his heart and saw that he had many possessions that he, he valued. And he said, okay. And this is what Jesus does for all of us, guys. He looked into his heart and he saw the thing he valued. And he said, give that up. Go and sell that. Take everything you have. Sell it. Give it to the poor. And then come follow me. Then you'll have eternal life. And the story tells us that the rich young ruler went away sorrowful. Because he had many possessions. That's sad. That's a sad scene. And that's a sad scene that we see in our own lives, if we're being honest, guys. And it's a rubber meets the road thing. Followers turn away. 
There was a scene where Jesus says some really hard things for Jewish followers. He says, you are going to eat my body and drink my blood. And the Jews are like, this is a hard saying. Who can hear that? Because that was unclean, according to the law of Moses. You can't do that. You can't eat a human being. That's wrong. I mean, it's still wrong today, guys. <laughs> and it says this, that the multitudes turned away and stopped following him. And then he turned to his disciples and he asked them, are you guys also going to leave me? And this profound moment, guys, and this is what distinguishes a disciple from a follower. Right here, their answer, what they had come to realize. They responded, and the saying was just as hard for them as it was for the followers that left. This was a very difficult thing to hear. And they said to him, where else can we go? You have the words of life. And then it says from that point on, Jesus' ministry focused on his disciples to prepare them for the work. It's like Jesus found who his disciples were, who would truly follow him, who would reproduce his work, who would be like him, who he could pass on the faith to, this mission, and he began to focus on them from that point going forward. And this is the challenge I want to leave you with, guys, for you guys to wrestle through this. Are you following Christ or are you a disciple of Christ? And here's some cool imagery for you from, from the Jewish people at that time. This is what the disciples understood. There was a, a blessing. Did I say this to you guys last time I was up here? Being covered in the dust of your rabbi? Cool. It's this really cool phrase from, from the, the biblical times, and it was a blessing that they would say to the disciples. They would say to them, may you be covered in the dust of the feet of your rabbi. And what it meant was, may you follow so closely to the person teaching you, to the one you're being discipled by, that the dust he kicks up as he walks covers you, and you see that as a blessing. That's imagery. And that was how they understood discipleship. And that's how Jesus understood discipleship. And that's why when he said, come follow me, these people left their careers and their jobs and their sustenance and their ability to provide for themselves, and they immediately went because they wanted that blessing. And there's a whole backstory to it, guys, that you can read about in the, the Jewish school system and what it meant. Like, 12 years old, like, they were either considered smart enough to go on or not. And at 12, if they weren't considered smart enough, they were told this phrase, go and learn the trade of your father. In other words, you don't have what it takes to go on and become a rabbi or a disciple of a rabbi, so you need to go and become a blue-collar worker and go and learn the trade of your father. But those who showed real potential, real intelligence, real ability, the rabbis would, would vie for them. And they would come to them with an official invitation that said, come, follow me. And now combine that with the picture I just told you, being covered in the dust of your rabbi, right? You, come, follow me. What they were saying in that phrase was, you, I believe, has what it takes to be like me. So come, follow me. Now take that and combine it with the picture you see when Jesus is 12 years old in the temple. And he's asking such intelligent, deep, insighted questions that the rabbis and the priests there are blown away. And they're all vying for him. And his parents come and said, Jesus, what are you doing? And he looks at them and says, um, I need to be about my father's business. 
right? This is Jesus. He's aware, and he's like, here. And you're thinking, like, the, the scene is meant to tell you he's about to become a student of a rabbi. And instead, his earthly parents say, come with us, buddy. And he submits to them, and what does he do? He goes and learns the trade of his father. The highest pick possible, the blue chip, you know, coming out of the, the top university, right? The number one pick of the draft, instead of going to become a disciple, turns and goes and learns the trade of his father, like all the rejected ones. And then, 18 years later, he emerges on the scene and becomes the greatest rabbi the earth has ever seen. And where does he go to find his disciples? Not to the synagogues to find the blue chip people. He goes to all the shores where the blue collar workers are, where the ones who were rejected and were told to go learn the trade of their fathers were. And he says, come, follow me. You have what it takes to be like me. That's why they dropped their nets and ran, guys. It wasn't because they were like, who's this weird 30-year-old guy calling us? All right, I'm going to go, Dad, see ya. No, there was a profound call in that statement to them. Come, follow me. You who have been rejected by the world, I know what it's like. I went and learned the trade of my own father. And I'm here to tell you, come follow me. You can be like me. That's what discipleship looks like. You believing that. You walking in that. So what does it look like for you practically? This, that you guys are stirred in your hearts to say, I want to be like my master. I want to be covered in the dust of my rabbi. I want this. I want to be a disciple, not a follower. Regardless of what you say, Jesus, you have the words of life. I believe it. And I, this morning, am going to make the decision to change my life. I'm not pursuing the things I was pursuing before. God, give me the grace to cut those things off now and to turn and to drop my nets and to leave my tax booth, and to leave wherever I was doing, and to run and get as close to you as possible. I want to be covered in your dust. I want to be seen by others as one covered in the dust of the feet of Jesus. And here's a profound thing that gets said about the disciples. After they leave, when they got beat and they leave, the Pharisees, they're left talking, and it says they say this about those disciples. They're like, who are these uneducated blue-collar people, that they could speak so well. And the conclusion they came to was like, these must be the people who were following Jesus. Think about that statement for a second. They must be the ones who follow Jesus. That must be why these uneducated people speak so powerfully. They're just like the Jesus they were following. The world recognized it. The enemies of the cross recognized it. And they were left dumbfounded. And this is what we're called to be. So what does that mean right now? Here's the challenge, guys. How do you become a disciple of Christ? How do you go from follower to disciple if you're in that place? Right? And whatever place you're in. Maybe you are a disciple of Christ and you've, you've slacked some or you've fallen away. Or you've allowed the vision to fade. How do you redeem this? How do you restore? How do you revive this? One, you can't do it in your own strength. Know that. Just conclude that. You need the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does, lead you into truth and begin to stir this thing in you. So what does that look like? Well, to me, when I read the scriptures, it means this, that you commit to pour over the scriptures. This is what God gave us. Not a set of teachings from your favorite preacher. Not the best worship album on the market right now. 
You could sit and soak in the greatest, most anointed worship on the planet. It's not going to make you any more of a disciple. It's the truth that sets you free. It's the truth that he called you to follow. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the best worship you'll ever hear. Wait, wait, I think I got that wrong. Hold on. I get confused sometimes. He didn't say that. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is the truth that we need to soak ourselves in, and then worship will be amazing because you're worshiping from a place of truth. When you preach, it'll be amazing because you're preaching truth. When you live, it'll be amazing because you're living truth. You're manifesting the word of God just like Jesus did. He was the word made flesh. You have been called to be a manifestation of the truth. In 1 Timothy 3.15, it actually calls us this. It says the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. That's what we're called to be. Can we do that? Let me ask you that. I'm asking you that right now. Are you ready? Are you willing to make a hard commitment and a hard decision like that today? This isn't a sales pitch. This is me saying, search your heart. Are you in a place to do that? Are you willing to put your arms wide open, throw yourself on the altar as a living sacrifice and say, God, search me and please remove any idols you find. Please remove any false beliefs and things and selfishness and things in my mind. God, I'm asking you to retake the throne of my heart. To make yourself Lord of my life once again. <clears throat> it's a necessity. And when you do that, it says this. That he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our unrighteousness. And that he takes everything about us and he casts it as far away as the east is from the west. It says he throws it into the sea of forgetfulness. And just like the parable of the, the prodigal son, he comes running to you and he embraces you. And he says, yes, it's my desire for you to be loved by me. And from that place to then love others in the same way you've been loved. <coughs> it's a powerful, powerful thing. So <coughs> I, hate to, I would hate to leave without giving people an opportunity to really do this, you know, to really have a time to do this. So if you feel like you need, you need the Holy Spirit to shift some things in your life, right? And you're not afraid of what it looks like, if that's the case, and, you know, stuff like that. But, like, this is big enough for you to, to be willing to do it. Then let's come up here and we'll, we'll just pray together, right? We're going to go after God together for a little bit. Um, how do you feel comfortable doing some worship? That would be great. Uh, and we're going to do that. Oh, you know, man, oh, you know, man, oh, you know, man.